As you're taking your seat, you can take your Bible and open up to Genesis chapter 11. And if you don't have a Bible, our ushers are at the front here. They're going to walk towards the, the back. Uh, we would love to get a Bible into your hand so you can just slip your hand up in the air and we'll make sure one gets across to you. And if you don't own a Bible, just keep this. It's our gift to you today. We want to bless you with a copy of God's Word and, and believe that God will use it in a mighty way as you read it and hear God speaking to you from the pages of Scripture. As you're getting yourself situated there, I, I want to maybe see if you can relate uh, with me to maybe some significant moment in your life. We all have these kind of unforgettable moments that are etched into our hearts and minds, things that are just impossible to forget, Sig significant moments that maybe changed everything in our life, maybe even changed everything in human history. Some of you are old enough to remember the assassination of JFK. And for you, that was a pivotal moment in your life and in, and in world history. You remember it vividly. Some of you remember the fall of the Berlin Wall, and you remember the significance that, that came to bear upon the world. Um, some of us uh, remember, who are, who are not that old, uh, remember things like 9-11. I remember exactly where I was when those planes hit those towers. I can remember the scene. I remember being in my parents' basement. I remember my college classes being canceled. I just gave away how old I am. I can remember watching the television. I remember the smells. I remember the moment. I remember thinking, everything is changing in this moment. Most of us are, are old enough to have, have had a significant moment in our lives and we remember it vividly, but I remember if, or excuse me, I wonder if you remember the most significant event that's ever happened in your life. I wonder if you remember hearing God call out to you, calling you to himself. Do you remember the moment that God called you out of darkness into his marvelous light? Do you remember where you were? Do you remember who you were? Do you remember how you were living your life when God decided to reach down in that moment of history, in that moment of time, to open your eyes, to behold the beauty of the gospel? Do you remember feeling the weight of conviction of your sin? Do you remember being broken over your sin and realizing that God loved you so much that he sent his one and only son to come and die for you? Do you remember falling at his mercy and grace? Do you remember the day, I hope, that changed everything in your life? Here, we are given a snapshot of the call of God upon a man named Abram. A man whose name will later in the book of Genesis be changed to Abraham, a name you're much more familiar with, I'm sure. But we see here the call of a man that changes not only his life, but really, truly, like few other events, it changes the trajectory of world history. It changes the history of countless individuals throughout the history of the world. 
And what we see is that the call of God on his life in many ways, though it is significantly different, in many ways there are significant parallels of God's call on our lives. And I want to look at three aspects of God's call on our lives as we look at God's call to this man, Abram, today. First, I want us to see that God calls us through his gracious providence. Let's pick up at chapter 11, verse 10. We enter into another genealogy. It says, these are the generations of Shem. We're beginning a new section as marked off by Moses, the author of Genesis. It says, when Shem was 100 years old, he fathered Arpachshad two years after the flood. Gives us a bit of context. And Shem lived after he fathered Arpachshad 500 years and had other sons and daughters. When Arpachshad had lived 35 years, he fathered Shelah. And Arpachshad lived after he fathered Shelah 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Shelah had lived 30 years, he fathered Eber. And Shelah lived after he fathered Eber 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Eber had lived 34 years, he fathered Peleg. And Eber lived after he fathered Peleg 430 years and had other sons and daughters. When Peleg had lived 30 years, he fathered Reu. And Peleg, Peleg lived after he fathered Reu 209 years and had other sons and daughters. When Reu had lived 32 years, he fathered Serug. And Reu lived after he fathered Serug 207 years and had other sons and daughters. When Serug had lived 30 years, he fathered Nahor. And Serug lived after he fathered Nahor 200 years and had other sons and daughters. When Nahor had lived 29 years, he fathered Terah. And Nahor lived after he fathered Terah 119 years and had other sons and daughters. When Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. As I mentioned, we were beginning here a new section, a new kind of chapter break or division. And we find here what we've seen Moses do um, earlier on in Genesis, particularly chapter 5. He gives to us another 10-person genealogy. We know that these are abridged genealogies and that the number 10 is significant. It's communicating to us, as we've seen, theological truth, theological realities. Much like in the previous chapter, we saw the 70 nations as being representative of the entire world population. And here, what Moses is doing is he's calling us to see these two genealogies as parallel genealogies. We have to remember what's going on in the book of Genesis. We've seen God create this world good. We've seen how sin has entered into the world. We've seen how God has brought a curse because of sin upon the world. But in the midst of God's judgment and curse, he makes a promise that there is going to be one born of the woman, an offspring of the woman who is going to crush the head of the serpent. And from there, we've watched how the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent have been at war with one another. There has been this, this great battle that continues to rage as God is going to bring forth his promised one to put an end to all the evil, sin, and death in the world. 
But every time we think things begin to go in a, in a good direction, we see that they quickly go downhill, right? Uh, here's God's promise, and we see Cain and Abel. We, we know how that unfolds. God brings forth another child by the name of Shem, and he shows us in chapter 5 that it is through the line of Shem that he is going to bring about this promised offspring. Humanity continues to go downhill, And what we find out is that they're so bad, they're so violent, they're so sinful, they're so immoral that God is going to judge the world with a flood. So he brings this worldwide flood and he purges the earth, he renews the earth, and he brings forth a new earth with a new kind of Adam figure in Noah. But really quickly we see that Noah is just like Adam. He's a gardener like Adam and he steps into his garden and he takes the fruit and he sins with the fruit and he's naked and he's ashamed and he needs to be covered. And then humanity continues to devolve and they they band together and they decide they're going to build this city, this tower, all the way up to heaven. They're going to try to do what Adam did. They're going to try to live autonomously from God. They're going to try to live apart from the rule of God. They're going to try to declare, we can be God. God judges them by dispersing them and scattering them all over the face of the earth. And that's where we find ourselves here and now. We have just seen the judgment of God scattering them across the world. And so we're left wondering, well, how is God now going to fulfill his promise to bring about this promised one? And what we see here is that it was Cain's line that led to the flood and Cain's line that led to Babel. And it's interesting that after Babel, things don't get immediately better. You kind of expect, maybe, maybe God will fix the problem now, but this genealogy actually tells us that quite a lot of time is going to pass before this man Abram is born. In fact... Peleg, a name that we read there, is right in the middle of the the genealogy here of Shem. And Shem, Peleg, excuse me, we know this from chapter 10, verse 25. Uh, It was during the time of Peleg that God divided the earth, that the Tower of of Babel uh, Babel, uh, occurred and God dispersed the nations across the face of the earth. But what we find out is that Peleg had a brother named Joktan. And what we're seeing is that there's a divide in the family line, and Joktan's line led towards Babel, but God is splitting off the family line, and Peleg is going to lead to Abram. One led to the dispersal of the nations, the other will lead to the hope of the nations. Kenneth Matthews, commentator, said, one is leading to disgrace, and the other is leading to grace. The other significant name that we saw last week is in verse 14, and that's the name Eber, which is the name or the word from which we get Hebrew, a hint of the people that God is going to form through this family line. Now, let me just point out some significant literary features here. 
Eber is the 14th name from Adam. If you know anything, if you've been paying attention, if you've been tracking with Moses, he uses the number seven uh, as a kind of highlighter in the text. And so I think what he's doing here is he's highlighting the name Eber as significant. Hey, here's where the Hebrews are going to come from. He is the 14th, seven times two. And interestingly, Abram is seven times three. He is a 21st from Adam, another derivative there of seven, all all of this. You say, well, what, why, is, why is this structure important? Why are these literary features important? Well, in this instance, listen, listen, all this is suggesting the perfection of God's divine plan and gracious providence. It's like, it's like he's saying, I, I get it. I get it. Things look chaotic. Things look out of control. Things look confusing. But guess what? I'm still in control. You may think that, that God doesn't know what he's doing. You may look at your life and you may look at the world and think maybe God doesn't really know what he's doing. And, and this little this section, these 10 member genealogy is a little subtle reminder like, no, 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 no. God is working all things according to the counsel of his will. He is doing everything exactly the way he desires and plans. There is nothing in this universe that is happening outside of his will. He's in complete control. The main purpose of this genealogy is, is to show that even though, listen, even though the world is scattered and confused, literally, nothing has scattered or confused the plan of God. Sometimes it does. Listen, if we're honest, it, it does feel scattered and confusing. Our lives feel scattered and confusing. Our world, it often feels dark and hopeless where do you turn in those moments? To whom do you look in those moments? And I think in one sense, what, what Moses is reminding us here is that, listen, this, this name, these list of names is a reminder that God is, is providentially directing all things in this world. But the name that matters most is a name that's not in this genealogy. It's the name that's sovereignly above this genealogy. He's saying, look, the name above all names, Yahweh God, is the one that you should look to. He's the one to whom you should turn in the midst of chaos and confusion. As we compare this list to the list we saw in chapter 5, it's actually what's missing that is most important. And I wonder if you remember, as we read through the previous uh, genealogy in chapter 5, the one refrain we heard over and over and over. Do you remember that? It, we were given a name, and then we were given a length of time they lived, and you remember what came directly after that every time? And he died. Did you notice that that is... Absent here? That, that is not an accident on the part of Moses. He didn't just forget that people died. This is a strategic, strategic literary development in this text. Genesis 5 is expressing that genealogy, the new reality of death that has been introduced into human existence because of sin and the curse. But here, listen, it's absence. Commentator Alan Ross says this. He says, this, it's absence stresses a movement away from death toward the promise and it stresses life and expansion. 
It's, in other words, a glimmer of hope in the midst of the darkness. God's desire is not death and destruction for humanity. It's life and creation. God's desire for you is not to walk the path of death and destruction. It's to walk the narrow road of life and joy. There's one more glaring omission in this genealogy. There's no mention of anyone walking with God. Did you catch that? There's no Enoch here. There's no hint that there's somebody godly in the family of Abram, and that's not insignificant. In fact, the the context would seem to imply that everything was dark. Everybody had turned from God. Even in the promised line, it it almost appears, almost appears like there's nobody who's going to follow God. I mean, even the people of God, these are supposed to be the people of God, but there's no hint that any one of them actually know the one true living God. It seems almost hopeless. Listen, listen, emphasis on the almost. But you know what we learned from this? Listen, here's what we learned. This is really, really important. If we are left to ourselves, listen, apart from God's divine intervention, not one of us will choose to follow God. Do you realize that? Not one of us. If God doesn't providentially orchestrate some kind of intervention in your life, bring that person into your life, bring that significant event into your life to humble you, to break you down, to allow you to go through that trial, that difficulty, to allow you to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, you will never turn and follow God. You will never turn from your sin. You will never leave your old life behind. You will only continue to walk further and further away from God. And you see, what we're being told here is that our God is a God of grace. Because our God is not a God who leaves us in our sin and leaves us for destruction. Our God is the God of hope and life who intervenes in his gracious providence in our lives. Amen? Our God comes to rescue us, to call us out of this old life. Every call of every person is dependent upon God's grace and God's providence. Every situation, listen, that seems lost and hopeless in your life is still under the control of God. It is never pitch black, if I can say that in your life. Some of you feel, you're like, you're like you don't know my life, Ian. Listen, it's never pitch black. When the sun goes down, listen, the stars still come out. The light may seem like it's so small, but it's still there. God has not forgotten, and God will never forget his people. And what seems so dark in your life right now, what seems so dead, so hopeless today, listen, this is a call and a reminder. Don't you realize who your God is? Bring it to him. What person in your life seems too far gone? What relationship in your life seems too hopeless? What circumstance feels so dark and so overwhelming that you feel like it's just death? Bring them to Jesus. Bring them to Yahweh God. 
He's the God who calls us, and he calls us, and what's amazing here is that he calls whom he wills, as he wills, and when he wills. It doesn't always happen on our timeline. Do you realize that? Again, I told you, there's a long period of time that passes by here before God decides to intervene through this one man, Abram. Listen, you just need to be patient sometimes. Your timeline is not always God's timeline. Your ways are not always God's ways. God's never late. He's always on time. And you can trust him. Well, for what purpose does God call us? We see this secondly. God calls us to be his godly people. And we we move now from this broad general genealogy, this list of a family line, now into a narrower, more specific family unit. Verse 27 says, now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren, and she had no child. Terah took Abram his son, and Lot the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, And they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. We start again really quickly, another new section. These are the generations, he says, of Terah. And this section is going to extend all the way through the life of Abram, which is going to take up a good chunk of the rest of the book of Genesis. But notice, we're given another genealogy here, but it's, it's not a ten-name genealogy. If you count the names, it's actually an eight-name genealogy. And I actually think this is significant. I think Moses is, is kind of intending us to pick up on the fact that there's only eight names, and he's, he's kind of wanting us to ask the question, why? And let me give you the reason I think this is happening. He's wanting us to anticipate the birth of two more individuals. Who will Abram give, or Abram, not Abram, he's not going to give birth to anybody. He's not that woke. Uh, he, he's, his wife, Sarai, is going to give birth to two children. The ninth in this line will be Ishmael. The tenth will be Isaac. It will be the one through whom the line continues to extend. And so there's already built into this text this kind of anticipation of what God is going to do and how the story is going to continue to unfold. What's interesting here is the mention of the, the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. Now, it's significant that he points out Ur of the Chaldeans. 
in the ancient audience, the ancient readers would have already had some context to what's going on here or why this was important. You see, Ur of the Chaldeans was a region in southern Babylonia. So in effect, what, what Moses is drawing attention to is that Ur of the Chaldeans is actually in the Babylonian region. It's part of Babylon. And there's almost this prefiguring. So imagine, by the way, if, if you're reading this and you're one of the exiles who's living in actual Babylon during the reign of Nebuchadnezzar and you've been exiled there out of the land of promise. When you read this, here's what happens. You see here that Abraham, your father, Father Abraham, is just like us. Look, he was, in essence, in exile away from the presence of God and God was going to call him out to the promised land. It's this picture of unity and solidarity. The people of God are always the people who are living in exile. It was the same for their forefathers, for the patriarchs. It will be the same throughout the history of the nation of Israel. It's the same for the church. Peter calls us elect exiles of the dispersion sojourning our way to the promised land. And there is a, a hint here that this is a part, listen, of our spiritual heritage. They also would have understood something about Ur of the Chaldeans. The, the original audience, you know, he doesn't have to go into detail here in what's going on, but the, the, the original audience would have known that Ur of the Chaldeans was not a nice place. It was an ungodly place. It was a hub of pagan idolatry. And in fact, the, the primary form of worship in this major, major metropolis was a worship of the moon god. There was this lunar religion, and commentator Kent Hughes says this, that in his homeland, Ur, Terah's tiny inbred family were moon worshippers residing in the leading center of lunar religion. He goes on to say that the city was dominated by a massive three-staged ziggurat built by Ur-Nemu during the beginning of the second millennium BC. So the ziggurat is this, this temple-like structure. Think of a kind of pyramid. This is what they believe the Tower of Babel would have looked like, and it would have just kind of gone around and up and up, and it was this, this picture of, of pagan worship at the city center. He goes on and he says this. He says, each stage was colored distinctively with the top level bearing the silver one-roomed shrine to Nana, the moon god. Ur of the Chaldeans was excavated in the early 1900s, and here's what they discovered. The royal cemetery reveals the ritual burials were sealed with the horrors of human sacrifice. This is a deeply, listen, here's what I'm trying to say. This is a deeply, deeply wicked, ungodly city. It is the city of man. They are steeped in false religion, false worship, horrendous human sacrifice, all kinds of violence and immorality. And this is where Abram and his family lived. And this, listen, this is what they did. You're like, well, aren't you reading a little bit into Abraham's actual worship practices? Sure, maybe from this text, but let me show you what Joshua 24 verse 2 says. And Joshua said to all the peoples, 
Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, long ago, your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham, and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Abraham comes from a family of pagan idol worshipers, and he himself is a pagan idol worshiper. Abraham's family, including him, were polytheistic. In fact, this is fascinating. Their names come right out of the cult of moon worship. This is, this is how much they love their religion. You know, you, some of you, you, like you love God, you love the Bible, your Christianity is everything to you, and some of you have decided to name your kids after Bible figures. Well, the same was true in ancient religions. It was a form of showing honor and respect and elevating their religious convictions. So listen, Tara's name is related to the word Yerea, which means moon, and Yera, which means lunar month. Sarai, Abram's wife, is the Akkadian equivalent of queen, the word queen, and was the name of the wife of the moon god, Sin. Ironically. Milka is the same as the goddess Malkatu, a title of Ishtar, daughter of the moon god. <laughs> All I'm trying to show you is this. Abram was not a worshiper of Yahweh when he was called by Yahweh. He's not a righteous man when God called him. He was an ungodly man being called out of an ungodly culture and civilization in order to worship the one true God so that he and his family would become his godly people and fulfill his God-ordained purpose for the world. And that's awesome. And you know what's really awesome? It's the same thing that God does to you and I. He calls us out of darkness into his marvelous light. He calls us out of an ungodly culture. He calls us out of an ungodly lifestyle. And he calls us into a new godly life in Christ Jesus. I love what Peter says in 1 Peter 2 verse 9. Listen to how he describes the church to you if you're in Christ today. He says, but you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, this is Abram as much as it is you and me. Listen, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And then he says, as a result, you say, what what should this mean, beloved? He says, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, listen to the link back to Abram, to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. He calls you out to be godly. It's interesting, here he calls them to move from Ur of the Chaldeans, and you'll notice that what they do, you know, I think what seems to have happened here is, is he moves from Ur, he goes to Haran, and then the question is, well, then how, how does God get him to uh, Canaan? Because what, what seems to be clear is that both in Nehemiah 9 and Acts chapter 7, verses 2 through 4, in the speech of Stephen, one of the things that the, the scriptures want to make clear is that God called Abram when he was in Ur of the Chaldeans, not when he was in Haran. And so we got to kind of square this a little bit. But what we find out, I think it went something like this. 
I think God must have called Abram when he was living in, in Ur of the Chaldeans. And then he goes to Terah, his father, and he says, listen, listen, dad. I just met the true and living God. He spoke to me and he called me to leave this place, to get up and go to a land that he's going to promise to give me. And it's in Canaan. And his dad must have been like, oh, okay, I mean, this is, this is really unusual, but he, but he must have bought in at least at some level. And so they, they pick up their family and they move to Haran. And it's not a small move. They're, they're going to Canaan, but I think what happens is they get to Haran, which is another, listen, massive city where lunar worship, moon worship was prevalent. And I think Terah gets there and I think he says, I don't want to go any further. And so they wait there till he dies. And, and I think this is a, a powerful listen picture that I just consider Tara for a moment. It seems like he was kind of riding the, the, the coattails of Abram's faith. But riding the coattails of somebody's faith only takes you so far. It can't actually get you to where God wants you to go and, and Tara is a, a stunning example of a, of a man who seemed to get so close and yet he's so far. And Abram decides to stop and hunker down. And, and you know what's interesting? The text tells us here that, that in verse 31 that there they settled there. Now again, that word settled should jump off the page. And what we're seeing is that Terah is in one sense going to be held in contrast to Abram. I mean, God is not calling them to settle there. God is not calling anybody to settle apart from him. They want them to go all the way to the promised land. And I think Abram's trying to honor his father, and so he defers, and they stay there, and maybe they go back to Ur of the Chaldeans, and then God calls him back out of there, or perhaps God gives a second call while he's in, in Haran and says, okay, it's time to leave. It's interesting. I, I, I've seen this time and time again. There are some people who give the appearance of having faith. They, they give the appearance of hearing from God, the call of God upon their life, and they appear, at least for a season, don't we read about this in the Gospels, to leave their old life behind, to march toward God, and then all of a sudden, all of a sudden, they go back. They go back to what's comfortable. They go back to what's convenient. They go back to what they've always known, the worship that is of the world. I love, though, how God calls Abram when he wasn't a perfect man and he wasn't even a godly man. I got my hair cut this past week, as you can see. I think you did an okay job. Okay, apparently that's debatable. <laughs> and I've, I've mentioned some of you are getting familiar with this because I've, I've talked about some of the conversations I'm having with my barber. I thought about having a special kind of sermon segment called Conversations with My Barber. <laughs> but I'd have to get my hair cut a lot more than I'm comfortable with. It's not cheap. It's not cheap. 
But some of you know this, um, I've had this ongoing conversation with my barber, and he's this young, you know, he's middle, middle tw- maybe early, late 20s, somewhere in there, and he's Jordanian, and he's a Muslim, and so we've had these ongoing conversations, and lots of really, really good conversations, and, and I was just in there this past week, and he's in the middle of fasting for Ramadan. It's Ramadan right now on the Muslim calendar, and so I was asking him a little bit about that, and I, I, I said, well, okay, so you've been fasting, and I'm not sure you should be cutting my hair because you look tired. So I said, can tell me a little bit about why you fast as a Muslim? Why do you fast in Ramadan? And, and he said, well, you know, it's really just about purifying yourself and getting rid of all the sin. And that's what fasting is about. He said, and he said, this, he says, it's about getting yourself pure so you can be acceptable to God. And he said, you Christians, you fast, right? You do that too, right? I said, well, we fast. We don't have it on the calendar like you guys do. Or we, we do fast, but we don't fast for the same reason that you just described. By the way, I, I, I read this this past week. One scholar, Professor Muhammad Abdallah, says this, a Muslim scholar, says, fasting purifies the physical body from toxins, helps discipline the soul, and purify it from the blameworthy. And so I told him, I said, listen, we, we do fast, but we don't fast to make ourselves acceptable to God. We're accepted by God, to, by God only by grace. And you see, the life of Abram in his context and in his family background is a powerful reminder, listen, that you don't have to clean yourself up before you come to God. You come to God and he cleans you up. You don't have to fix yourself before you come to God. You come to God and he fixes your brokenness. You can't make yourself godly. God calls you to himself and then he begins the process of making us a godly people. And it is a process. Even Abram, I think this is evidence. The fact that he stops and settles with Terah and Haran is showing he's still young in his faith. He's still in process. But listen, even as much as he's not kind of going yet all the way in his faith, God is still faithful to his people. He calls him again. Come, come to the land of promise. And I just want to say to, to, to us today, listen, as a church, God is calling us out of an ungodly world. Some of you, he's calling specifically out of an ungodly life. You're living an ungodly life. You're living a sinful, rebellious life. You're living in opposition to God. You've chosen to become more like the world, even though you claim the name of Christ, You're trying so hard to fit in with the world. You want to be liked by the world. You want to be accepted by the world so much so that you're willing to compromise your convictions, to not live with courage and faithfulness and godliness. And as Christians, listen, we cannot spend time trying to fit into our world. We have been called out of our world to stand out in our world. And it's essential that we take this call upon our lives seriously. And if you're an unbeliever here today, I just want to tell you that life is not found in blending into this world. It's not found in in what this world has to offer, in the name you can make for yourself in this world, in the worship of this world. True life is found in being called by God to be one of his godly people in this world. I also think this is a great reminder because some of us live with such immense 
shame and regret in our lives. And I, I think of Abram and his pagan background, and, and I, just, I think this helps us think through this so much in our, our lives. Listen, no matter who you are or what you've done or where you've been, your background actually provides the backdrop for God's grace to shine forth. Your past doesn't have to define your present. Your failures don't have to define your future. His grace can overcome your disgrace and bring you from death to life. And that's exactly what God wants to do. In fact, look at verse 30. Did did you catch that? Now Sarai, his wife, was barren. She had no child. If you know anything about the story of Abram, by the way, Paul picks this up in Romans chapter 4. You know what God is going to do. And barrenness in the ancient world, I I talked about this in Genesis 3, this is pulling us back into the curse. This is the pain of child rearing. This is a result of sin. Here is a woman who can't have a child, and this is absolutely devastating. But what we see here is God is giving us a hint. He is going to bring life from the dead. And that is awesome. Our God, I don't know if you know this, our God specializes in bringing dead things to life. It's kind of his deal. God's call is a call to a new birth in order that we might be a godly people. Well, how? How does God do this? That's the next question, the next aspect of this call. God calls us, listen, by believing his good promises. Chapter 12 says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families or nations of the earth shall be blessed. We're only going to scratch the surface of these three verses uh, today and dig a little bit deeper next week. But this is the first time we hear Abram in the scriptures speaking, or God speaking to Abram. And I I want you to, to know that faith in God always comes from hearing the word of God. It comes from hearing the word of God and believing the word of God and the word of the Lord, of Yahweh God that called the world into existence, that the word of the Lord that's used 10 times to call everything into existence now calls Abram to reestablish God's kingdom on earth. What exactly is the call? The call is that you must, Abram, make a complete break with your past. God calls for him to go and leave behind everything that's, that's dear to him. And for us, you know, this kind of travel is relatively easy. You know, going this kind of a distance is not that big of a, a deal in our, our day and age with air travel. It's hard to process the challenges that are raised here for Abram. Go from your country. This is very difficult. And go from your kindred, those are your more distant relatives, that's almost impossible. Everything in your life is attached to your clan, to your people, to your family. And then he says, go from your father's house. How how could the Lord possibly ask Abram to leave his father's house, his immediate family? I mean, this, this in the ancient world especially, listen, this is his very identity. 
He is Abram ben Terah, son of Terah. That's how he would have described himself. His father's house is his house. His father's goods are his goods. His father's gods are his gods. One, one commentator says, to leave home and to break ancestral bonds was to expect of ancient men almost the impossible. And what you need to see here is that what God is calling him to do is to move from comfort to discomfort, okay? From convenience to inconvenience, from the known to the unknown. And all of this requires great cost and great faith. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. By the way, that just raises the tension even further. I mean, just consider this. Like, there's nothing certain here. Go to the land that I will show you. Can you imagine somebody just told you to uproot your family and go to a land that you, have, you just know nothing about? I mean, if somebody told you today to, to go uproot your family and move to another country, I mean, okay, at, at least you can do a Google search. It's not like... It's not like Abram's over here on realtor.com, you know, kind of looking through. It's like, oh, doing virtual tours of homes or the land. Like, oh, this looks okay. We're going to be all right. Like, Sarai's not like flipping through Instagram photos going, oh, this place is so cute. No filter. They have no idea what this looks like. They have no idea the demand this is going to place on them to get there. They don't know what to expect. And by the way, we know the story. It's not going to be easy. This is no emigration to the riches of the United States or Canada. Abram is asked to trust blindly that the Lord will lead him to a favorable land. He's just, he's putting all his chips in on what God is calling him to and what God is going to do. John Calvin comments, uh, I'll put it on the screen, and he says that in effect, he says, I command you to go forth with closed eyes and forbid you to inquire where I am about to lead you until having renounced your country, you shall have given yourself wholly to me. Do you hear that? You know what he's saying, Abram? Just believe my word. Abram, trust me. By the way, he's 75 years old at this time. He's like, well, you know, a young man leaving another country, all right, it's going to be an adventure. He's 75. Sarai is just, she's a spring chicken. She's only 65. Why? Why? Why is he calling him to do this? Why? Why this sacrifice? Why is he calling him to leave all of this behind? Listen, the, the answer is actually very simple, but it's profound. He had to make a break with his past life. He could not continue to be who he was. He could not continue to live the way he was living. He could not continue. Listen, he couldn't continue a life with anybody who would hinder him or prevent him or stop him from wholeheartedly following the will of God for his life. He had to count the cost. He had to look at the closest, most dear relationships in his life and say, if, if you are going to hinder me, if you are going to prevent me from following God, I, listen, I choose God over you. 
I mean, this is, and this, this, is, this, is, this is the crux of the matter right here for anybody who chooses to follow God. Anybody who wants to follow God has to come face to face with this reality. This call is to forsake all in your life to follow God. Jesus says this, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Jesus said, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. The gospel calls us, listen, to rest all of our hope on the word of Christ and nothing else. When Jesus calls, listen, here's here's where the rubber meets the road. When Jesus calls, he does not guarantee the future, not in this life. He doesn't tell us what it's going to be like in this life, not in any positive sense always. He does promise, listen, that he will take us to be with him. He promises to lead us to the promised land. He doesn't promise us a life of comfort and ease. Listen, this is a false gospel that many people hear often. Jesus just wants you to be happy, healthy, and wealthy. You come to Jesus and all your problems are going to be solved. Your life is instantly going to be better. Listen, this is antithetical to the gospel of the Bible. It doesn't fit. He doesn't promise a life of comfort and ease. He does not promise, listen, this may be a wake-up call for some of you, he doesn't promise trial-free and tribulation-free living. He doesn't. No, actually, he promises just the opposite. Jesus said to his disciples, they hated me, they're going to hate you too. Paul said, all those who desire to live godly lives in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Paul in the book of Acts said, through many tribulations you must enter the kingdom of heaven. But he does, listen, he does promise, he does promise forgiveness and peace. He does promise that he will be with us through thick and thin. He does promise our ultimate good. But Jesus does not say it's going to be smooth here on earth. Kent Hughes says he does not say that your problems will be solved. If you're looking for these kinds of upfront promises before turning to Christ, you will never get them. And if you persist in your requirements, you will never come to Christ. He calls you to trust his word alone. Here, God does give Abram promises. And they they move from personal to global. That the Lord encourages Abram by giving him seven great promises. He says, first, I will make of you a great nation. Secondly, I will bless you. Third, I will make your name great. And by the way, this is in contrast. Remember the Tower of Babel? What were they trying to do? To make a name for themselves. God says, come to me and I will make your name great. Fourth, so that you will be a blessing. Fifth, I will bless those who bless you. And sixth, the one who curses you, I will curse. Seven, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Seven promises. Seven is the number of perfection and completeness. God's promises to Abram are perfect. They're complete. It's everything he needs. And I want you to notice, too, the repetition of the word, I will. He is the God, I will, I will, I will. He says, he's the God who is able to do everything he promises. 
He's the God who is all-powerful and unstoppable. He's the God who will bring light to the darkness, to bring the dead to life. He's the one who will overcome the curse of sin and death. He is the God of blessing. Did you catch the word blessing there? Five times these promises contain the word blessing. This matches the five times that Moses uses the word curse in Genesis 1 through 11. Can you hear what Moses is saying? Through this one, I will reverse the curse. Through this one, my blessings will triumph over the curse of sin and death. Through this one blessing, life will come. In fact, the promise of land, nationhood, the presence of God, blessing to the nations, it it all restores what has been lost by man through sin, through all that's recorded in Genesis 3 through 11. He's promising here, you know what he's saying? I'm promising you a return to Eden. I'm bringing you back to the, the land. Abraham is like a new Adam figure with a new beginning through whom God is going to bring us back to the beginning. And his promise, listen, here's the awesome truth from this text. His promise is our promise. This promise is not just made to Abram. You you and I are actually included in this promise. Do you realize that? The promise that was made thousands of years ago to Abram. God thought of you. You are part of the families of the earth who will be blessed. It moves from his immediate family that will be blessed as they follow God. But it expands to every single person who will believe the promise that was given to Abram. Who will believe ultimately in the promised seed who is Jesus Christ. Paul quotes Genesis 12.3 to demonstrate that the blessing of Abram has come to Gentiles through faith. In fact, those who have faith are called, according to Paul in Galatians 3, sons of Abraham. They're justified like Abraham and have been blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Look at what Paul says in Galatians 3, 6 through 9. He says, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scriptures foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. See, where did he preach the gospel? Right here, Genesis 12, 3, direct quote, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. All of this, listen, is funneling toward Jesus. All of these promises are going to converge in Jesus Christ. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, for all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen for his, to God for his glory. Paul says, listen, there's not a promise that was ever made to the patriarch that does not find its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Everything converges in Christ. And in this way, listen, the blessing of Abraham has come to the nations through Jesus Christ and is available to all who believe in Jesus. Again, Galatians 3.29, if you are Christ's, then you, get this church, you are Abram's offspring, 
heirs according to the promise. If you have not believed the promise of God, if you have not turned to Jesus, God calls forth to you today. In his providence, he has you here in this very moment, at this very time. He knows all of your background, all of your baggage. He knows all of your sin and all of your shame. He knows everything. And he is calling you to leave your old life behind, to forsake it, to turn and look to Jesus Christ, the one, listen, the one who bore the weight of your sin, the one who died in your place, and the one, listen, who rose victoriously from the grave to give you the blessing of life eternal. He holds it out to you. He calls you to belief. Do you remember when God called you? Maybe it was a process rather than a single moment. Do you remember where you were? Do you remember who you were? What you were doing? How you were living? Do you remember how everything changed when you met Jesus and heard him calling out to you? Come and follow me. Maybe that day is today. Maybe it's just a reminder for you today to pick up your cross daily and follow him. He calls us to faith through his gracious providence to be his godly people by believing his good promises. Remember his call and remember his grace to you today.